and we've been going through this uh, amazingly hard book. And if you've ever read Jeremiah as, as a book, read starting chapter one, going all the way to the end, not, not just the, you know, Jeremiah 29s or, or the middle of Lamentations, but you realize that Jeremiah's life was hard. Uh, he had to go through um, some of the toughest things being a, uh, a prophet of God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, of verse 1, we're going to read the uh, first six verses here. It says this, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother for every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Though deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this maybe perplexing part of the Scripture, this part of um, the Bible that we may have never even read before, even heard taught, and yet uh, it is just full of truth. It's just full of, of a mirror in many cases of our own lives, our nation, our, uh, ourselves as, as who we are as people, sinners, uh, people that uh, commit iniquity, that have fallen from your grace. And so, Lord, tonight as we approach this um, section of Scripture that, that speaks volumes, I, I ask that you would open up our eyes, our hearts, our minds. I thank you so much for these that are here tonight, that had taken that time out of their schedule uh, when they could be doing anything else, and they're here tonight. I am grateful for those that are online, the privilege of being able to have the technology and the, the men in the back that have given up of their time to be able to uh, stream uh, for Kat and uh, Rebecca leading us in, in an amazing worship service, Lord. I, I truly am I'm blessed to come to a church with pastors that, that love you for our, our head pastor, Pastor Mike Ostheimer and Pastor Jason and Pastor Mike Atkinson and Pastor Mike Cosper and Pastor Mike Butler for our elders, Larry and Ron. I ask that you just give them wisdom for a new year, a, a clear vision for our church, Lord, that you would desire, that they would desire above all others to put you first, Lord. And I thank you so much. Uh, the ways that you are working behind the scenes in special ways that um, are just abundantly clear. And I thank you so much for the privilege of coming into a building with, with people that love one another. 
and they're willing to be able to reach out uh, to one another in need. So Lord, I ask that you just help us tonight to see uh, your word clearly presented in such a way that that we would be able to understand it, not because of the person up here, but because of you and your Holy Spirit moving freely uh, in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, we've been going through the book of, of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is different from any of the other uh, prophets. You remember when we first started uh, Jeremiah, what seems like two months ago, uh, Jeremiah is the only one of all the prophets to write more than one book. Uh, Isaiah writes one book, Daniel writes one book, uh, all the other minor prophets, they all write one book, but Jeremiah writes two books. He writes the book of Jeremiah, this uh, amazingly depressing book that, that gets its perfect name from the next book that he writes, The Lamentations. He was known for being the weeping prophet. And you remember the definition that we saw at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, this word lament. And the word lament means something different than what we think of in terms of, of uh, you know, thinking of ourselves. We, we, we like to weep over our problems. We like to complain about what's going on in our lives where lamenting is always others directed. It's always outward toward those that are my family, my nation, my friends, those other uh, than myself. And we're going to see that as we uh, walk through this text tonight. But then Jeremiah was the last, the last of the major prophets. And, and you, you understand that, you know, the Bible, even though it has an order, uh, the order of the prophets aren't necessarily chronological. You see, Daniel takes place in a far country, but Daniel was taken away first, and then Ezekiel, and now Jeremiah and the riffrafter left. You remember in the story in 2 Chronicles where uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, Misael, these men, they were taken for one reason, one reason only. They were handsome, and they were able to learn they were smart. These were the people that are, were of value to the Babylonians. And so when they first come to Jerusalem, they take away the cream of the crop. They literally strip the doors of the temple of its gold. And then the second time Babylon comes, they come for the middle class. They take away people like Ezekiel and the blue collar workers. And they take them to the outer areas of, of Babylon there in the book of Ezekiel. And now all that's left, by the way, if you take away the handsome people who's left, you guys remember from last week, uh, these are the not handsome people. These are the not skilled people. Uh, the, these are the people that are the leftovers that are even rejected by Babylon itself. And these are the ones that Jeremiah gets to minister to. These are the ones that Jeremiah has to deal with. And Jeremiah has to deal with people that hate him. And that are known for their lying. In Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 1, what does it say? The very definition of Jeremiah's nickname 
the lamentor, or the weeping prophet. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night. But who is he weeping for? It says it there. Not, not for himself. Oh, woe is me. Look at the hard things that I have to go through, God. No, who is he weeping for? Who is he lamenting for? The people in Jerusalem. Whom we're going to find out are going to have to go through the hardest time in the history of Israel. Uh, where, where literally they're going to have to um, eat their own children. And roast their food over dung. Because there's nothing left in the city. It's an horrendous time. But we see here in the next couple of verses why this is taking place. Again, this is not the first time that God has come. This is not the first time a prophet has come to the people of Israel. This has been happening over centuries and centuries. And the people of Israel have refused to listen. And so God is coming. He's bringing these accusations against them. This is God speaking in this next section. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them for they are all adulterers an assembly of treacherous men god says in verse three and like their bow they have bent their tongues for lies they are not valiant for the truth on the earth for they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me says the lord what an accusation against the nation where they're known for lying. In fact, so much so that they've perfected lying. How does it say in verse 4? Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant. And every neighbor will walk with slanders. It is so bad that I can't even trust my neighbor or even my closest relative. Because everybody is known for what? Lying. Now there's a, a unique word that's used here. And I, I'm, I'm grateful, you know, we're in the New King James Version, and New King James is a, a word-for-word translation along with several others like the uh, New American Standard and the ESV. Uh, and the specific way that, you know, the, the authors or the translators of this version of the Bible, they choose this word on purpose. I had no idea what the word supplant means. Do you guys know what the word supplant means? It's like this very archaic word. But you see, it has an or or origin. It has a very specific definition you see in the hebrew this actually says jacob or jacob you are a bunch of jacobs that's what he's calling them and and if you remember if you were here last week we kind of went into the history of why Jacob was called this. You see, from the very beginning, when he came out of the womb, he was known as the heel grabber. 
He wasn't the only one in his mother's womb. You see, Jacob was a twin. He had a twin brother by the name of Esau. And Esau, of course, was loved by his dad. He was known as being this outdoorsy person. He had red hair. He was very buff, you know. He had the ability to be able to hunt and bring home tasty game. And one day when he comes home, when they're either teenagers or in their 20s, and, and he comes home with nothing, he's hungry beyond all get out. And Jacob um, does this lie, this supplanting of the truth, this betrayal to his own brother. And hopefully you're going to see how this all ties together. I know you will. Just like the Israelites during the time of Jeremiah betraying their own kin, their own brothers. You see, Jacob said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bowl of red beans. You like red beans? I'll, I'll give you a piece of bread. All you got to do is give me your birthright. You guys know the story. Esau being hungry, right? He gives the trade willingly. But that's not the only one that he betrayed. Who else does he betray? His own dad. Not only does he get the birthright, but he gets the double blessing from his own dad. You remember the story from the book of Genesis? He asked to put on literally a, a fur coating because he was so different than his twin uh, brother. He wasn't an identical twin. He had very smooth skin, unlike his brother. He didn't smell like the forest or hunting. He was very homey. He loved cooking at home. He loved spending time with his mom. And so his skin was smooth. His smell was not gamey. So he puts on clothes from his brother. He puts on the furs of his outer skin. So when his dad touches him, when his dad smells him, who does he smell? Esau. And his dad being blind, his dad not being able to see well, gives him what's called the double blessing. So not only does he get the birthright, what was dedicated to the older son Esau, but now he gets the double uh, blessing. You see, in Jewish culture, there was never an even split of the family inheritance. You see, between Jacob and Esau, the inheritance would have been split three ways, and two-thirds would have been given to the older son and one-third to the younger son. The oldest always got the double blessing. And there was a reason behind that. It was to support the family. But this betrayal that takes place in Jacob's life, literally the definition of his name, known as the supplanter. And this word that's being used here on purpose in the Hebrew, you are acting like your father, Jacob, before he became Israel. 
And again, you remember the story from last week when Jacob's name was changed. Jacob no longer wanted to lie. He wrestled with God and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And the understanding is now his life was meant to be full of truth. His life was meant to be in such a way that it was supposed to bring praise to God. No longer a life of lying, but a life of truth and honesty. Unfortunately, the people of the nation of Israel are acting like a bunch of Jacobs, supplanters, betrayers, liars. Not to those outside their nation, but those inside their nation, to their own brothers, to their own neighbors. They perfected this trait. In fact, in verses five and six, everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity, your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. You see, there's a purpose for their lying. And the purpose is to separate themselves further and further from the one who presents truth clearly. The God of the Bible. You see, God is known for what? The truth, for always telling the truth. And every time we lie, what are we saying to God? I don't want to look like you anymore. I don't want to trust you. I don't want to have you in my life as the truth. And so that mirror of lying and deceit, where not only are they literally deceiving others, but they're deceiving themselves as well. As a nation, we don't need God no more. We can do this on our own. And so begins the downfall of the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah itself. There's an amazing passage in Genesis chapter 32, verses 27 to 28 there. It says, so he said to him, and God has been wrestling with Jacob all night long, and he asks him his name. What is your name? Who are you in your core? And he said, Jacob. This same word that we see in Jeremiah, the word supplant, the word that is being used for a neighbor deceiving a neighbor, a brother deceiving a brother. Someone who betrays. And in verse 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. And so even today, we call them the Israelites, the people of Israel. 
the people blessed by God. But it gets worse, by the way. You think it can't. You think Jeremiah can't get any worse, but it does, just like the book of Lamentations when we get to the book of Lamentations. I mean, you think it can't get any worse than this. It gets worse. In verse 7, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them, for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Any of you that have ever, you know, uh, practiced archery or, or watched archery in the Olympics, what's the purpose of an arrow and a bow? What part of the target do you want to hit? You want to get the bullseye, right? And so they, they make sure that their arrows are straight and their bows are very accurate, right? But do you understand what it's describing them as? You're a lying bow. You're a lying arrow. And what does a lying arrow do? Does it hit the target? No. It swerves, right? It misses the target. By the way, that's the very definition of sin. You know that. Missing the target. No longer being accurate, truthful, but instead you're a lying bow. Even dangerous to yourself. Verse 10, I will take up a weeping and a wailing for the mountains, for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation because they are burned up so that no one passes through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle, both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone again, taking up his nickname, the lamenting prophet, the weeping prophet, no longer just affecting humanity as a whole, no longer just affecting the people in the city of Jerusalem or in the nation of Judah, but now even affecting creation itself. Affecting the animals even, because it's not just the people that are being hurt. What else is being destroyed? You know what happens in a war. All of the creation around it, the animals, the birds, they're gone. They don't want to be in the midst of this horrific situation. They've left already. Or as verse 11 says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. And by the way, this happens for 70 years. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it. They have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts after the Baals, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them this people 
with wormwood, give them water of gall to drink. I'm going to feed them with their own medicine. I'm going to feed them with their own deceit, with their own bitterness, with their own poison. By the way, and you've probably heard this word before in the, in the New Testament, this word gall, right? They're on Golgotha, the offering that was given to Jesus Christ on the cross. There in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, now it came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull. And if you've ever been to Israel or, or seen where the approximation of this would have been, it was known for its public traffic. You see, this was a, a place where lots of people passed by. And those crosses were meant to be public. And this hill, this place of the skull, uh, looking like a, you know, a human skull, a human head, where, where these crosses would have been put and people literally dying as the traffic would go by them. And even today, it's a bus stop where people go by every single day. It's a place where buses park. And you see the skull there where Jesus would have been uh, crucified. But what did they offer Jesus Christ on that cross? They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This overripe wine, vinegary, mixed with this bitter ingredient of gall. And as Jesus, you know, is this sponge would have been put to his mouth, he refuses to drink, even though he is thirsty beyond any comprehension that we could ever even begin to imagine. After having been there on the cross, being offered gall to drink, dying for the sins of the people whose sins are represented by what? As it says here in Jeremiah, gall, bitterness, lying. Do you, do you see the imagery? Do you see every single way that the Bible brings out these amazing truths in it? <clears throat> in verse 16, it continues, of Jeremiah chapter 9, I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom they or whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send a sword after them until I've consumed them. And by the way, this ties into what Pastor was talking about on Sunday from Romans chapter 4. We're going to see that they're going to have to live like circum uncircumcised people. That, that outward sign of something that was supposed to be meant as a significant event in the life of every single Jew or Israelite. Something that could not be undone, but showed the world that they were Jews, the chosen people of God. Listen to this. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women, that they may come and send for skillful wailing women, that they may come, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water, for a voice of wailing is heard from Zion." How we are plundered, we are greatly ashamed, because we have forsaken the land, because we have cast out our dwellings. Let Hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. For death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer to be on the streets. Speak thus, says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. Instead of joy and mirth on the streets, instead of happiness, what is now happening? The children can't even go out and play. The young man can't even go out and have fun. Why? Because death roams everywhere. Thus says the Lord in verse 23, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. And even in the midst of the most depressing time in the history of Judah, just like in the middle of Lamentations, there's this hope that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. And just like the book of Lamentations, it's those refrigerator verses. You're not going to have any of the beginning part of Jeremiah chapter 9 on your refrigerator. We'll put the, you know, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses are new every single morning. Right? Why? Because he's a great God, a faithful God. Every single morning I can see that sunrise and know that he has designed new loving kindnesses for us. New mercies every single day. Why? Because God is a faithful God whether I am or not. God is always faithful to us. But then this promise in chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, again referring to Romans chapter 9, I mean, except, excuse me, Romans chapter 4 from last Sunday, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are, uncircum are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon and Moab, by the way, all these people, Edom were the descendants of Esau. Ammon and Moab were the descendants of Lot. And all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised. They're not chosen by me. 
you're the chosen people of God and you're acting like a bunch of liars. You're the chosen people of God and you're acting just like the other nations that are sinners. And what will be the consequences? <clears throat> For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. You may look like it on the outside like a Jew, but inward you have that big thick callus on your heart. You're uncircumcised. Circumcise your inward parts. And just like Pastor was reading on Sunday, quoting from Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Does this blessedness that come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. When did God promise to give his blessings to Abraham. And you remember how Pastor so eloquently uh, brought about this, you know, description even before he was circumcised, 14 years before he was circumcised, God gave him the blessing. God gave him the promise. God chose him for his faith. And what does it say? And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. You see, you don't have to have the outward sign. You have to have the inward sign. The sign of knowing that I am chosen by God and that our hearts have been circumcised by faith. And then Romans chapter four, verse 12 ends it like this. And the father of circumcision, those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. How do we act? And it's easy to blame the Israelites. It's easy to point fingers at uh, the nation of Judah during this time. Oh, oh, they were just acting like a bunch of liars. But the mirror of Scripture is right before us. We can't deny it. Whether it's 2022 or not. A new year or even the end of a year. You see, there's this phrase that is being used all throughout chapter 9. It's this word lament or wail. And Jeremiah is calling for the women to wail. If you've ever been to a Middle Eastern funeral, or maybe even a, <clears throat> a, a, another country's funeral, an Asian uh, funeral. I've been to funerals in the Philippines. Or a, a, where, where it's, you know, the people are very free to cry. I, I had the privilege of coming to a memorial service here in the church this morning for Ramona, who, by the way, used to watch every single Wednesday night. I loved her. She'd always uh, either call me or, or talk to me the next Sunday about, you know, the service and stuff. And 
and, and you know her her assurance was where she knew she would be going after uh, she left this world. It was to be with uh, Jesus Christ. Even though we grew up in different backgrounds, and you know there was there's you know this this commonality between us of of not only you know uh, church but also hymns as well. And here in the memorial service, there was joy. Because everyone knew where she was. But what happens at a funeral where you don't know where that person's going? Is there a more somber tone? Knowing that that person for all of eternity will dwell apart from the presence of God. In hell itself. And the opportunity is now. We're not supposed to lie, but we're supposed to tell the truth in love. I want you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And Jeremiah is having to tell the truth to those that he loves dearly. I do not want you to go through this. I don't want you as the prophet of God. I must tell you the truth. And people are going to hate him for it. His own family will hate him for it. His own livelihood, the other priests will hate him for it. The other prophets will hate him for it. The king will hate him for telling uh, the truth. So in Jeremiah chapter 10, we pick up the story again. It says this, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Again, having to speak the truth to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, do not learn the ways of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at a signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts down a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with an axe. They decorate it with silver and the gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. And many commentaries, maybe even people that you know, they say, well, this is just like a... Christmas tree, right? Look at it. It's plain, right? You're not supposed to have a Christmas tree in your house. Oh, that horrible thing that was up here on the stage, you know? What are you doing? Worshiping a Christmas tree. They'll take you right to this text where people go out and they cut down this tree. They nail it to some boards and they make it stand upright, but then they forget to read the next part of this next verse here. What does it say? Now, there's a difference, by the way, if you're bowing down to that thing. But do you understand what it says in the next part of this verse? If you take this thing out of context, what do they say in the very next verse? For part of this verse, verse 5, because they cannot go by themselves, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of that tree. For they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. It's just a tree. That's all it is. It's just like the meat that Paul talked about. I can eat it, but I don't if someone that I know will make it stumble. I don't care if it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. 
I know all things that come into my body I can bless. It's what comes out of my mouth that describes the intent of my heart. Again, going back to uh, lying. So this thing, this idol that we're, is being described here, and again, we're going to see this later on, whether it was from the book of Isaiah or also later on in the book of, of Jeremiah, where a person will, you know, take this log, this, this part of a tree, and, and part of it he'll make into an idol, and the other part he'll throw on the fire and roast some food over it. How absurd is that? And then you're bowing down to this idol. It's just like bowing down to a Christmas tree. You see, it's how we treat it. And again, the pastor was so eloquent in describing, you know, the origins of why we have a Christmas tree, whether it was from uh, Luther or even before Christians that saw the uh, everlasting glory of God and the privilege of seeing not only the representation of the star that led the wise men to Jesus Christ or the gifts underneath the gift of Jesus Christ uh, to the world. And we can do the same, by the way, in the way that we um, take traditions out of context. Verse 6 and 7, this is exactly what happens. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you, for they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. I love that phrase. Everything that you put before God is just a worthless doctrine, and you shouldn't even study it. You shouldn't even go after it. You see, whether it's a person who studies all these, uh, you know, uh, other religions in order to save their friends, it's just worthless doctrine. It's a worth of your. It's a worthless part of your study time. Instead, what should we be studying? And you know the answer: the truth, the Word of God, and presenting the truth. To those around us, silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Ufaz and the work of a craftsman and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They're all the works of skillful men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And at his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure is indignation. It's how you use your abilities and your talents. You see, these things, these very same things, by the way, were used by, you know, craftsmen during the time of King Solomon, craftsmen during the time of, of Moses for the tabernacle, during the time of, of uh, King Solomon, Oholiab, and, and this man who had this ability to be able to weave and, and uh, beat these amazing metal works in the very temple itself. And it was used by God, but in the hands of another person who has the same exact ability, but instead they use it for idol worship 
or something other than the craftsman of God, what does it say? There's only one true God. There's only one that we should be using our skills and abilities for. You see, every single natural talent, as well as spiritual talents, all come from one source. The God who created each and every single one of us. Isn't that amazing? The privilege that we have to have that. Verse 11, thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of its treasuries. All these unexplainable natural forces God designed and created. And he tries to explain it to us dumb people. And we try to understand it. But even today with all of our technology, all of our satellites, guess what happens? An I-95 in Virginia. Or an event where, oh, it's going to be nice and sunny, and then what happens? You know, it's, it's Bakersfield weather, right? Oh, and then we explain it away like, oh, you know, it's the, you know, uh, the, the, the shadow factor or, or, you know, just that sheer factor, you know. All the things that we don't understand. Does God know every part of his creation? Yes, he does. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And again, all these things. And, and by the way, these, these weren't even animated. And it's the same thing today. Whether it's your, the thing you hold in your hand or the things that you watch. Anything that replaces the God of the universe who is living and alive and active. We can make into a dumb idol. Dull-hearted without knowledge. Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. Woe is me for my hurt, my wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity, and I will bear it. Jeremiah speaking. My tent is plundered, and all my cords are broken. My children are gone from me, and they are no more. There is no one to pinch my tent anymore, or set up my curtain, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted. And have not sought the Lord, therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. By the way, what was the uh, natural ability that not only Jacob had, and Abraham, and Isaac, and the people of Israel were known for being? And when Joseph came into the land and he took over and he invited his family in, 
There was a portion of land that was given to them in Egypt on purpose, Goshen, because they were known for this trade of being shepherds, having flocks of uh, sheep. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see the same exact illustration of Jesus being the what? The good shepherd. And do the sheep know the difference between the real shepherd and a false shepherd or a just a hired hand, someone who's going to run away when troubles uh, come. Yes, they do. As it says in verse 22, behold, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a din of jackals, the Babylonians are coming one last time and they're going to raise everything to the ground. The walls are coming down. The temple's coming down. Everything is going to be destroyed. Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Oh Lord, correct me, but with justice. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Thank God he gives us grace and mercy. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him, consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. I don't know your heart right now. I, I don't know how you came into this room. But I do know how you can leave. See, tonight is the first Wednesday of the month. And we get the privilege of having communion. And so I invite you, there's stations around. Just grab a, a one of the elements and hold on to it. We're going to be taking it corporately. And I want to read to you some some verses that normally I, I don't read these. Normally I read from the book of Matthew and the Last Supper. But, but tonight, I, uh, just because of the context that we have been going through, I want to make sure we have a time to examine our own lives. Because Jeremiah, every single time he presented the truth, had to examine his own heart. A am I speaking the truth to the people that are liars? You see, liars are the ones that know liars easily. I don't know if that makes sense. But do you understand? Uh, you know, especially if you have that ability to lie, you can catch other people's in lie. Because you are have already perfected it. You know it, right? It's just like a thief. Why, do, why does the government hire thieves? Because they can catch thieves. Or people that are hackers, because they can catch hackers. They know the mind of that sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the people in the church of Corinth, they were known for their sin. They, they openly, in public court, would take their fellow church member and sue them 
they were known for, you know, having a couple in their church that was a, a son and his stepmom, and they were sleeping together, and the church bragged about it. Oh, look at us. We're so accepting. But not only that, even at communion, even in the Lord's Supper, whenever they would take it, it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And again, referring back to Jeremiah. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you came to or come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it, by the way, this was a church that Paul established. He planted this church. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Everybody was looking for some sort of recognition, the attaboys, the applause. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. The Corinthians, they were known for their spiritual gifts. In fact, in the very next three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see the spiritual gifts listed. And yet, despite the fact that they were known for the ability to speak in tongues and interpret tongues and healing and all these other spiritual gifts, they were acting like hypocrites as they would partake of the Lord's Supper. Those that were rich, those that had, didn't have to work, those that were able to get transportation easily, they would come to the church quickly, they'd bring all their nice food and they would eat it. And then those that had to work for a living, those that had to walk the church, those that were poor would come in later and what was left over, nothing. Part of the congregation is drunk and the other part of the congregation is starving. And skipping ahead to verse 27 there, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. There's a consequence in taking this in such a way, nonchalantly, flippantly even. Oh, this is just a, a little bit of, of grape juice and a cracker. No, this represents the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And it's supposed to be taken in a worthy manner. Every time we take this, we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And we look forward to partaking of it with him in eternity. It says in verse 28, but let a man examine himself. Let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks and eats in an unworthy manner 
eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body for this reason. Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. There's consequences. And again, I invite you, if you haven't gotten one, just grab one. And, and for the next couple of minutes, just, just hold the cup. Come before the Lord. Examine yourself. Because I would hate, I would hate for you to take of this in an unworthy manner tonight without giving you an opportunity to repent. Giving you an opportunity to be able to come before the one who died for you and say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. And, and again, I mean, you've heard this said before. You don't have to be a member of this church to you know, partake of this. The only, the only you know, requirement is that you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That's the only requirement. And if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, guess what? You can know him tonight. And if you don't know him, you know, come forward while, you know, everyone is, is bowing. And just take some moments and just examine yourself before the Lord, before we partake together corporately. says in verse 23 for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed he took bread and as we hold this tonight are you holding it Jeremiah yeah as we hold this together the representation of the body of Jesus Christ. When he gave thanks, he broke it and he said to them, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, this is meant to be done corporately. Whether in your family or those of you that are online, uh, with your family at home, together as a, a church family. It was meant to be a community. In verse 25, it says, And in the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it again 
in remembrance of me. There's something that happens every single time you take this. And unlike the Corinthian church, I'm glad we go to a church where we have the privilege of having, you know, people that not only keep me accountable, but keep one another accountable. Because there's a reason behind this. And it says it there in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you proclaiming? What are you saying when you take this cup and eat the bread? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's an amazing hymn, and those of you that come on the first Wednesday of the month know this. When Jesus and his disciples, after they left that upper room, they went up to the Mount of Olives, and they sang a hymn. There's an amazing hymn. I'm just going to read the Third, the third verse, guys, third verse, it says, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. We have an anchor for our soul. We have someone who tells us the truth when we are liars, when we're Yaakov's, when we're Jacob's. We have the truth. And Jesus came to show us the truth. And so tonight, as we sing this hymn, I pray that you would leave different than you came in here tonight. That the words of the Lord, the words of Scripture from Jeremiah would speak truth into your soul. So please stand with me as we sing this song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he the my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. One Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is 
Nothing inside all around me. And so, Father, listening to my friends and my family uh, sing praises to you is such a, a privilege. Lord, help us never trust, even in the sweetest frame, even in the sweetest lie, even in the sweetest deceit, even in the sweetest, as we learned tonight, supplant or Yaakov or Jacob, all the things that this world deceives us with. Instead, Lord, help us to know the truth and to study it only. That all those other worthless doctrines, may they fall by the wayside. And help us to fall before you, knowing that it was you that came to this world as the word of God to present truth uh, to us. And so, Lord, tonight I ask that you would bless these, my friends and my family, this church, that you would use us. And even though we say this every single week, help us to actually mean it, that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.